Welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast with Hal Elrod. I'm your host, Nick Polkuski, and you're listening to the show that is guaranteed to help you take your life to the next level faster than you ever thought possible. In each episode, you will learn from someone who has achieved extraordinary goals that most haven't. He is the author of the number one best-selling book, The Miracle Morning, a Hall of Fame business achiever, an international keynote speaker, ultra-marathon runner, and the founder of VIPSuccessCoaching.com, Mr. Hal Elra. Uh, all right. Uh, Achieve Your Goals podcast listeners, uh, I'm laughing here. Me and my guest are having some technical fun. But uh, welcome. Welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast. This is your host, Hal Elrod. And I am excited for today because my guest that's on the show created a tool that can truly help you achieve any goal. So this is very unique in that I've definitely had authors on the show before where, yeah, their book could help you achieve your goals, that sort of thing. And, you know, obviously the advice that we give you, everything is designed to help you achieve your goals. Well, what's neat about our guest today, again, is he created a tool, an actual physical, a tool that you can use that can truly help you achieve any goal. So our guest is Tony Stubblebine, and he is the founder of Coach.me, formerly Lyft, which is an app that has helped hundreds of thousands of people achieve their goals, ranging from, you name it, productivity to fitness to stop drinking to meditation to, you might have guessed it, the miracle morning. You know, yes, that is a topic on there that uh, you can get coaching on, and no, it's not coaching from me. But uh, Coach.me, which was actually backed by Tim Ferriss and the Twitter founders, Ev Williams and Biz Stone. So there's some some heavy, you know, uh, heavy artillery behind this thing. It was recently featured as a best new app by Apple, and it offers a combination of free daily reminders, community support, and advice. And then you can also choose prepaid, I'm sorry, pre-made plans from coaches, or for as little as, I think it's like $14.99 a week, you can get one-on-one coaching. So Coach.me is this really, really cool tool. It's a way for you to have immediate and affordable form of coaching that can help you achieve any kind of goal. And I'm excited to have the founder of Coach.me, Tony Stubblebein, on the, uh, the line for you guys today. Tony, you there, my friend? Well, Hal, I'm excited to be here, but I was almost ready to just let you keep going on. I love that uh, explanation of Coach Tommy. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. We're, uh, um, we've done a lot uh, to help people achieve their goals, and I'm looking forward to talking to you a little bit about what we learned along the way. Cool. Yeah, no, no me too. This is going to be... This is going to be great, and you've got a sampling of uh, you know hundreds of thousands of people, which is you know not a lot of uh, coaches, so to speak. And I know you're you're you know more of a CEO probably than a coach, but I know you're a coach as well. And not a lot of yeah. coaches can say, "Here's what's worked for my hundreds of thousands of clients." Right? Right. That's it is, a, it yeah. is actually kind of amazing thing about moving coaching online, and th- this is what we're really excited about is the paid piece where you actually have a personal coach working with you because coaching is the secret weapon of so many elite performers, yeah. but coaching is so inaccessible because it, you can't find a good coach, you don't know how to tell if they're any good, and then usually you can't really afford them. And uh, so by bringing the price down, bringing them online, the main thing is we can measure what works, and it turns out that what works is a little bit surprising. So uh, you know, when we launched, I, we were shocked to find that professional coaches were often outperformed by kind of peer experts who are doing a couple of things differently than the professionals have been trained to do. We're like, aha, like we have learned something important about 
how humans work, you know? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Uh, yeah, cause, and you're right, though. I mean, I, I'm a coach, and I became a coach because when I hired a coach, he changed my life, and, and exactly. not just made me feel better, but I mean, I, you know, I, it was the, I doubled my income that year. I mean, it was, it was profound, measurable results, and I wanted to kind of pay that forward for other people, but you're right, it's, it's hard to, f- to find a good coach, you know? In fact, my, my, my friend and I used to joke when we were brand new coaches that we, 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 were, we were better at, we were probably better at selling coaching than actually coaching, right? So, right. so we were good at explaining the benefits of coaching in a, you know, in a very compelling way. So someone signed up and then we're going, man, are we as good as we are thinking we are? You know, so. Well, I mean, I'd rather, it's good that you started that way because I feel like a lot of coaches have the opposite experience, which is they have no ability to sell, coach, sell themselves as coaches but a lot of innate ability. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, either way, there is, there's a lot of problems in the existing coaching industry. But if you solve that problem, you have something you know truly amazing. Like, did did you ever read the book Talent Is Overrated? I did not, but I like the title. It is like basically a takedown on the idea of innate genius, hmm. uh, which some people find threatening because it is like uh, it's like it's kind of judgmental in some ways. Like, if you haven't achieved anything. It's not because you were born dumb, right? Hmm, yeah. That's like, but it, it's also, I always, I've read it as very optimistic because you get the secret backstory of all sorts of successful people and realize that they had this unfair advantage, some sort of really expert level coaching. Like, I was shocked to find out that Mozart's dad was a music teacher. Ah. I was like, not every child of a music teacher goes on to be a child prodigy. Sure. But dang, what a like, what an advantage that most people don't have. And, you know, it's the same. You'd say the same about Tiger Woods. His dad was probably the best coach of three-year-old golfers that the world has ever seen. So, you know, congrats for Tiger for, you know, not so much these days, but earlier in his career, for working hard and being, you know, uh, really diligent about his craft. But he had an enormous advantage that most golfers don't have. And just, like, that ends up being true over and over and over um, like if you get the backstory, there was this team of coaches, like even Michael Jordan had his own personal team of coaches beyond the ones that we know about. It wasn't just, uh, Phil Jackson running the bulls. It was behind the scenes. Michael was paying this guy, Tim Grover for, um, uh, really at the time, pretty innovative, um, uh, strength and fitness work that a lot of other NBA players weren't doing at the time. Yeah, interesting. The uh, yeah, I mean, I think there, and I I don't remember the exact quote, but there was I definitely saw in print once. You know, Jordan attributed his success to his coaches. You know, from from early on all the way to the end of yeah. his career. Yeah. Um. So tell us, take just a minute or two to tell us a little bit about your or or, or three or four or five. Don't feel limited to one or two. But uh, Tony, tell us a little about you. What? How did you know? How did you get into uh, becoming the CEO of you know one of the top apps and this this uh, this platform that's that's changing a lot of lives? Coach How How did you get into that? Well, yeah, the thing that I always try to lead with, and because I think this is really the most important story to tell, is that there's always a, a career ladder. And even if someone looks like they're an overnight success, there was always something that led up to that. And so one of our investors, Biz Stone, has this phrase, it took me 10 years to become an overnight success. Yeah, and I, just, I like, love that. I love that, right? Yeah, yeah. And so in Silicon Valley, there's this idea that you can get funded, like people will just throw you millions of dollars just for having an idea and nothing beyond that. And so there's one way to look at this company, which is, after Evan Williams stepped down as CEO of Twitter, 
he was looking for projects to do and I invited him out to uh, coffee and pitched him on this idea and he said this sounds really fun we should do this together why don't I fund it and help you design it and like so like I literally like you know had nothing to show for it I had maybe a prototype but I was the only person who used and liked that prototype hmm. so I like I had no traction nothing going for me and this top you know high level investor and product designer uh, said this will be my next project after Twitter. Now, Tony, I've got. I want to pause right there because I'm curious, and maybe some of our listeners are. How did you get coffee with the co-founder of Twitter? Well, this is the ten-year plan. Okay. Right. This is the much better way of looking at it. Is that uh, when I graduated college, I got a. I was a computer science major. I got a really boring programming job doing trivial work and I decided I didn't want to do trivial work for the rest of my life and so I moved out to California to work for the most exciting tech company I could find which this was in the downturn so it wasn't like that exciting but it was this company O'Reilly Media which is the hub for a lot of innovative tech people in the, at that time and then from there I worked myself up to be a lead engineer where I was managing a team of engineers and then I went looking for a startup I had impressed the people at O'Reilly enough or people in that O'Reilly community that they made an introduction in 2005 to this guy Evan Williams hmm. running a podcasting startup called Odeo. And he was already pretty famous at the time because he had started Blogger, which back in the day was like the fifth or sixth most trafficked website on the internet, like a huge deal at the wow, time. Wow, wow. And he's actually amazing because he's created two of the top 10 most trafficked websites on the internet. Twitter and Twitter blogger. also broke uh, into the top 10 for a while. And um, so, uh, and they had been interviewing for a, a director of engineering, and they'd been interviewing all of these really senior people. And the team was just like, you know, these people are so rigid and outdated. We want someone you know, much younger and more current. And so I came in and I was like the young guy who seemed to get it and everyone seemed to like. And so I was the head of engineering at Odeo. Odeo failed as a podcasting startup, but it succeeded wildly in that Twitter was, the, uh, was incubated there and we spun Twitter out of Odeo. So, um, so like, it took a lot of work just to get that job. And then I had to do good work in that job. And then I had to be friends with these guys for this like multi-year period while they were at Twitter. I went on to do other things to start a, co a different company for myself after Odeo. Um, and, but you know, when they were leaving Twitter, like here, they're like the prototypical angel investors because they made a ton of money at Twitter and they wanted to pay that forward. And I had always been someone that you know they had liked working with, and uh, and so. Absolutely, you know, I have no problem giving myself some of the credit. Like, I took advantage of my opportunities and I did good work. Um, but it's also like it's just the value of time, and that having done ten years of good work in tech and startups put me in a position where I had a friend who I could call on for for coffee. Wow, very very cool, and that I, I love. You know what you said that that quote. From biz, and I've I've heard it said from a few different people, but yeah. uh, ten years of your overnight success is, is one of the most uh, I think the tr truest statements. And, and of course, for some it might be five years or three years or eight years or twelve years, but it's that idea that you've got to be committed uh, for the long haul. So all right, so you so you you had lunch with biz, and then uh, continue or with Ev, and um, 
the, uh, and so they were putting together an incubator and um, and I, I guess you know I was winding down my previous company this just a big life lesson so there, you know if you think about it, it takes 10 years to be an overnight success it kind of begs the question what are you willing to put 10 years of effort into and mm. so at my previous company I built social networking software and then I bootstrapped it I had no investors so I one of my big goals was just to become profitable, and um, and so I ended up selling it to events and conferences. It did a lot to boost the networking experience at uh, for attendees of of events, and a lot of conferences were wanting something like that at the time. And so I turned it into a business, and I was just hustling for three years. And the only thing I would tell myself every morning is, I can't let this fail. Like I just had so much pride wrapped up into it. And then the second it was profitable, I sort of scratched my head and I was like wait a second, do I want to spend the rest of my life becoming the world's expert in conferences and events? Hmm. That was like my big aha, like, oh, no, in no way. <laughs> like, I just have no, no innate interest in that. So I had to really back up and say, what would I spend 10 years, or really, to my mind, 50 years, the rest of my career really focused on? And I have always loved human potential. And I mean, I love it in every single way. I love it as a sports fan, but I also like, I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons, and I think the two things are absolutely related. Like, you know, in Dungeons and Dragons, there's this you're always getting experience and leveling up. And like, that mindset was so drilled in, like, drilled into me as a kid that that's just what I thought life was. And so when you look at an athlete, it's like they practice and get better and level up. And like, you know, I'm a Warriors fan. They just won the NBA nice, title. Yeah. Huge Steph Curry fan, right? And it's just like you. Well, I mean, here's another example of his dad was a basketball player. He learned things about playing in the NBA that your average kid is not just not going to learn. Hmm. And you know, he just practiced and practiced and practiced, and he had to level up a couple of times in order to kind of make it at each at each new level. And no one was looking at him and thinking. Oh, this guy is definitely going to make it. In a way, he's the, he, to me, he's the most uh, honest uh, athlete right now because it, you know there's so much suspicion about performance enhancing drugs. Yeah. But like, no one can look at Steph Curry and go, "Well, that dude, he's on drugs." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right? He's like too he, short, too skinny, huh. not really like all that fast. It's like, but he he is killing it, and it comes back to practice. Yeah. I love it. So, uh, your success is impressive. What about failure? You know, for me, that's always a big part of success. And I think that so many, it's human nature to avoid it. People avoid failure like it's the plague when successful people, you know, you look back on your journey and you go, wow, there, there were tons of failures. And, and, and often the average person is avoiding the failure. So they never go through it to get where they want to go. Uh, so what's your, for you personally, what, what's been a notable failure and, and, and how'd you overcome it and, and what'd you uh. learn from it? It's, you know, the, to me, there's almost the hardest part about really devoting your life to self-improvement is that you can never reflect back and not consider the old you a failure. Like, it's just really hard. Like, the, the kind of the glass half full way is like every day you're going to be a little bit better and that's a really optimistic way to live. But whenever I look back at me like a year ago or two years ago or three years ago or ten years ago, I'm like, oh, I just I can't believe that I wasn't as good as I am today. I wish I had known then what I know now. But I think the thing that really hurt me as a failure that was like really emotionally tough was uh, in college. 
I had, um, I'd, I don't know, I thought, I'd grown up convinced I was lazy. I don't know if other people, I'd, this goes back to, I always think it's important to tell people that, you know, successful people weren't just like born that way. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, if you're not doing well in school, it doesn't mean that there's not hope for you. So I was completely convinced that I was lazy until um, I started running in high school. I started running cross country and track. And then, you know, I got more and more into it. And one summer, I, you know, I came back from the summer and it turned out I had run more miles that summer than anyone on the team. And I really had to reflect and say, well, well, shoot, I'm not lazy. You know, like no one who's lazy would have, you know, won the kind of the mileage competition hmm. for the summer, right? And so what's really going on? And, you know, it had dawned on me, well, I just, I think I'm lazy because I don't really like doing homework. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe I'm not lazy, maybe I'm apathetic. And it's really, to my mind, like running had saved me. That le- finding something pa- that I was passionate about and um, had had just completely changed my self-image and I felt so much better about myself because it dawned on me, if I find something I'm passionate about, I can really throw myself into it. And I just, you know, I ran and ran and ran. And so I got the chance to, I just improved a ton my senior year. Like every race was a personal best. I was running faster and faster and I thought, well, you know, I'm going to a small school for college. I went to this Division three school, Grinnell College in Iowa. And, uh, and in Division Three, you know, often they have really liberal policies for who can make the team. And so I was like, oh, I might run in college. And, um, and I, I decided, my senior year was so, such a success, like just personal best after personal best. I just assumed that would continue. And what college was for me instead was injury after injury. Hmm. And after every injury, I came back thinking, I got to run more miles. I got to get faster. I got to run more miles in order to get in better shape. Then I get injured again and I have a setback. And so it's actually my expectation for college is that I would get faster. And the reality is that I did not improve my time at any distance hmm. in college. For it's like I was slower in college than I was in high school. And this was shocking to me. And what it did is it led me to a concept that people call deliberate practice. So a lot of people believe in hard work. That's a really natural thing. The, the realization is not just that you have to work hard. It's how do you work? You know, how, how deliberate are you about how you practice? And so in hindsight now with more experience, the thing for me is that I stayed very healthy in high school because I was also training for basketball. And so a lot of the basketball training, especially for my calves, which were the things that most uh, were most often to get injured for me, actually kept me healthy as a runner. And so when I got to college and I start, kind of gave up on uh, the weightlifting and the kind of the a lot of the leg exercises that I think were really keeping me healthy, uh, I gave, that was actually the practice that I needed to be doing. And I never really examined like what's the smartest way for me to train. So that's some, something that I think about a lot. Uh, whatever I'm training, I'm, now I'm much more likely to be training for uh, business. You know, how can I be a better CEO? How can I be a better product designer? How can I be a better coach? Um, but I, you know, I think not just about putting the work in, but what is the smartest way to put the work in? And that's that field is usually called deliberate practice. Deliberate practice. Okay. Well, speaking, let, let's transition from there into 
your best goal achieving tips? You know, give me your top top three or give or take. But with the experience you have through you know being a CEO, yeah. starting multiple companies, and, and then really through this Coach Me app and, and the hundreds of thousands of people that have been impacted through the coaching, uh, what have you learned about human uh, human beings and and what what they need to do to achieve goals beyond what they've ever achieved before? Yeah, I mean, we're really applied psychologists, so we look at what other people are writing about and we say, well, you know, does that fit? Does that actually work? Let's see what happens when people um, uh, put it into practice. And then same, you know, like I almost feel like Coach Demi is like uh, if, you, if you've ever seen the old hair club for men ads where the, the, the guy at the end, he goes, and I'm not just the president, I'm also a member. And he shows himself, you know, back when he didn't have hair. <laughs> yeah. It's like I'm the same way. It's like I'm not just the CEO. I'm also a member. I'm super... Uh, like this is very much an app for me. There's three things that um, are are a big part of my, the process I go through with the goal on uh, Coach Me, and often for the most important ones, I'm working with the coach. So I'll explain the role that the coach does. Okay. The first is I I like to write, and so I usually start with uh, my ideal plan. So like when I revise my morning routine, I write an essay, and that I. That essay is really about articulating really specific decisions so that they are they were made rationally and that I won't have to ne- negotiate with myself in the moment. So if I'm like, well, you know, do I brush my teeth before the shower or after the shower? I don't like I shouldn't have to debate that. It's just make the decision and and live with it, right? Mm-hmm. And um and so this sort of like epic idea of what my uh, my morning routine is, or how how do I manage my priorities for the day, or what is my workout routine? I think of that as re- as research that comes from this book, Thinking Fast and Slow, where a lot of your worst decisions are made at a kind of subconscious emotional level. Yeah. I usually use the example of lunch. If I don't have a lunch pre-planned for me or a lunch delivered to me. Um, a lot of times, I actually have a coach right now who picks meals for me and has them delivered. Um, but what will happen instead is that I'll walk out of my building and I'll have to choose a restaurant to go eat lunch at. And that choice will be 100% decided by my stomach. It'll say, hmm, we need fried food, right? Because like, yeah. I'll be too hungry to really be thinking about it rationally. And the majority of our decisions are made that way. And a lot of times the way to overcome them is just to name them. The, the second you apply language to the decision, it forces the decision into what uh, Daniel Kahneman, the author, would call the slow part of your decision making, which is the rational, effortful, a little bit slower world. And So I like to like write this plan because that's a, a big part of me pre-planning it. But that's not the same as adopting the plan. And you know the thing that we've learned over and over again is the most important thing you can do is have uh, momentum. Like if you don't have consistent action towards your goal, there's really not like you're not going to will yourself to be great over in one day, right? Is that that consistent action builds the habit, gets you started. You start to figure out what's hard, what was wrong in your plan. You get a lot smarter. Um, everything gets easier. You start to build the infrastructure around yourself that lets you be successful. 
and that's a, a BJ Fogg thing at Stanford. He calls it tiny habits, but that that concept comes up over and over again. And the way we train our coaches is to always coach uh, for the habit first, uh, because once the habit is there, there's a it creates a ton of room to do the growth work. Uh, whereas if you try to do all the growth work up front, especially in digital coaching, it just ends up feeling like homework and doesn't go anywhere and uh, no, nothing really ends up happening. And then the last, the third, and this is probably the most recent realization I had, which is like I'm really motivated by fun. Like hmm. I want to, and um, I had, I had I actually sort of learned this by being a basketball fan is uh, I was reading about how the Warriors run their practice and they start every practice with loud music and the whole team taking full court shots. So nice. basically just goofing off, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and Steve Kerr, the head coach, he stole that idea from Pete Carroll, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks who were in, the I think, the last two Super Bowls and won the Super Bowl two years ago. And uh, same, like they don't take full court shots. I don't even know what the NFL equivalent of goofing <laughs> off is, but uh, they do. Like it's loud music and it's fun, and um, and it is like it, so. Like a good example then for me is my in my morning routine. There's this decision between what's the most efficient thing for me to do first uh, versus what's the most fun thing for me to do first. And uh, like you know, because the fun thing will get me out of bed, and uh, so it's actually my first step to get out of bed is um, to sit on the floor with my dog. Hmm. Right, and it turned out like that was the keystone kind of piece of my morning routine that let it work. And any other kind of ordering, actually, I like to do quick exercises too. Sometimes that gets me excited, mm -hmm. but you know that's very personal. Um, but like a shower, uh, breakfast even, uh, picking out my clothes, uh, nothing really got me excited to get out of bed. And so I just sort of lie in bed thinking, like, do I really need to get out of bed yet um, until I found something that was like, oh, no, that's actually better than being in bed. And um, so that's a big part of my reevaluation process as I build up new habits is I think, well, is this – is this exciting enough? Is this fun enough? Um, you know, even at work, I, I often start the day with writing because I like to write. And, um, you know, email, for example, is more of a mixed bag. And so I'll push that off until I'm already hooked in, in the zone. Got it. I love it. So, so you write, so first tip is you write out your ideal plan. You decide everything in advance. I heard you say on an interview with Dave Asprey that, um, to paraphrase what you said, you have, you, you said you have a decision budget each day, oh, yeah. right? Making decisions uses up your energy and the morning is where you set yourself up for whether you're efficiently spending your energy budget. Can you, can you go into a little more depth on that? Well, you must agree with that, right? You're, you're really, <laughs> that's why I wrote it down. <laughs> right. The, um, I mean, this is, like, like I say, we're applied psychologists. So we read psychology and we wonder, okay, how does that fit into your everyday life? And there was a great article, which is actually best written up in the, in the New York Times about this concept called decision fatigue. Hmm. And it starts with this really horrific study of parole judges in Israel. It turns out that your chance of being paroled uh, goes down 
the further away the judges got from their last meal. That essentially hmm. they got fatigued to the point that it was too hard to agree to let to to a parole later in the day, which is like so awful. I mean, you think about the ju- you know the word justice in the justice system. Yeah. There's nothing just about that in any way, and. Um, so basically, if you want your parole hearing to be at 8 a.m. or, or 1 p.m. If it's at 11.30 a.m. <laughs> or 4 p.m., you're really you're screwed. Yeah. screwed. Totally screwed. And so the idea is that every decision in your day kind of wears you down. And uh, as your day goes on, at some point, you, you've sort of exhausted your decision budget. So the applied way to think of that is, okay, let's say I've got a thousand decisions that I can make in a day. When we talk about decisions, we're not talking about, like, uh, what car should I buy? We're talking about what shirt should I wear. Yeah. And um, so if you have that budget, then you can sort of, you can decide where do you want to spend those decisions. And for me, I want to spend those decisions at work. And so I look at someone like Steve Jobs, who you know was a very successful business person and product developer, someone in some ways can be very admired. And he had this habit, which I love, which is he would wear a black turtleneck every day. And yeah. so when he woke up in the morning, he would just pick the black turtleneck at the top of his pile of black turtlenecks, <laughs> put that on, and he had like he knew what he was wearing. When I wake up for the day, I wonder, uh, what's the weather? Do I have any in-person meetings? Um, and then, like, what's clean? Like, there's, like, you know, I, there's a bunch, normally there would be a bunch of decisions for me to make that really aren't that important. Yeah. So simple things like uh, only having one type of sock. I mean, I have got special occasion socks, but my, like, <laughs> Normal socks are the same every single day because I just didn't see the point in having to decide what socks to wear today. I just I would rather make spend that on a different a different part of my life, and um, so a lot of like that morning stuff is if you can save budget there, then you're set you set yourself up to spend it more on the things that might matter to you later in the day. Well, I, and I agree. If, if you look in my closet, it's very boring. I think I have. I think I'm up to like 27 black V-necks now. Yeah, I uh, love it. It's kind of my. That, that's my. Go, you know, it's just like that's the shirt that I like. It's easy. If my hair's already done, I can get it over my head without messing up my. Like it just it's functional and it matches everything. I don't. I only have black shoes. Uh, yeah, I just keep it real simple and boring. But um, one of my uh, one of my friends and co-authors of one of my Miracle Morning books, Michael Mayer, he 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 talks about the four enriching rituals that he does before bed. And that is one of them. Pick out your clothes for the day or for the week so that you don't have to think about it and waste that energy in the morning. Yeah, that's so. a good one. And then your second tip, uh, focus on habit first and then the growth word. So so just I want to make sure I understand. Uh, are you saying just identifying which habit do you need to put in place to get achieve the goal that you're, you're wanting to achieve? Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, it's... Um yeah, a good example right now, something that's been exciting that's going on in our company is a lot of people have been approaching us for business coaching, either for themselves personally or for their entire team or company. And often what, they're, what they want, you know, sort of the end result that they want, especially when they're offering you know, business coaching to their entire staff, is they want their staff to be more entrepreneurial. They want their staff to be more creative. If there's a problem, 
they want their staff to step up and just solve the problem, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and the kind of the default thinking of most most people who work at companies is do what I'm told, get my job done. But if there's a problem, it's not necessarily my job to solve it. Because I mean, honestly, most companies have so many problems. It's like if you thought that way, you might end up getting really frustrated. So the um, so we've had to kind of talk through what is the best way to coach that. And traditionally, an executive coach would meet with a person once a week and kind of strategize and like talk through and assess and go really, really deep. And what would happen is if the person had a specific problem that they talked through in that meeting, that specific problem would get addressed. But a lot of times, like these things are coming up on a daily basis. So our coaching tends to be very daily where you hear from your coach every day hmm. and the way that we found that's more successful is to say why don't we instead of talking through how can you be more entrepreneurial why don't we build a habit like set priorities for your day so you and I probably set, have been setting priorities for a day for a really long time sure. but your average kind of staff person like that's new to them I mean, there, most people make a transition from at some point from I have a to-do list and I want to complete as much as possible to I need to be really hyper diligent about doing the most important work and so instead of tracking tasks they switch over to prioritizing and so if we build that habit you sit down at your desk and you evaluate and write down your priorities that's a habit but then it creates a space for a conversation what is your top priority are you going to get it done? If you didn't get your top priority done yesterday, why not? And um, and hooray, if you did get it done, was it a good priority? Did it matter? And that's sort of the aha for leaders in a company is they're like, wow, I did this work and it wasn't really the thing that moved the needle. There must be a like something, a different way to do it. And like once you start evaluating your priorities that way, you start to see entrepreneurial opportunities within your company. And so it all starts with this really simple habit. And if you do that every day, then it it kind of it creates this forcing function where you are then able to start achieving the much bigger things. And we just found that starting habit first leads to much bigger successes than um, you know, kind of coaching uh, epiphany only, which is how I feel a lot of um, a lot of you know once a week traditional coaching ends up. I I mean you do a lot of coaching, so I'm curious like how you describe kind of the the. I mean I have a I have a once uh, exec coach too that I work with, and I've had these major epiphanies with him. Is sort of a lot of the reason that I'm in coaching. But it, you can you can kind of see that there's this gap in the coaching that he does for me. I wonder if you've ever thought about in your own coaching how you wish you could it, it kind of extend the impact of what you're you're teaching people. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, you know, I, I there's different opinions that I have about it. For me, I usually coach most of my clients twice a month, um, right. and I, I usually tell new people that are you know reaching out wanting coaching, if they uh, you know once a month isn't enough, um, right. you know, four times a month, uh, it, you know, because I used to do weekly. Um, the, the I had mixed opinions. I thought you know for me two is the sweet spot, and it's the sweet spot both for me in terms of how much time I want to be able to commit to my coaching practice every month, but but also, I, I look at it as it kind of gives a client an opportunity to where they have, you know, one week, they're still kind of reeling off the, they're on the, the emotional high of the coaching session. Then they've got a week where they've really got to develop some self-reliance, you right. know. Right, right. Um, 
but I definitely think that uh, I think accountability is the it literally it is the gap closer between how we are living our lives at the level of potential yeah. that we are fulfilling and the right. level of potential that we have within us because having that other person for me like the miracle morning when I was writing the book it was I think three years of trying to write it and then it hit me as a coach I went wait a minute I don't have anyone holding me accountable to finish the book. Right. That's why I keep failing year after year. It's my number one goal. I fail. Number one year. And then I went, and then I, I was like, dude, I got to get an accountability coach. So I hired an accountability coach and it went from, you know, three years of being a goal that I failed to achieve to four months later, it was in print and a number one bestseller on Amazon, you know? Yeah, and that's exactly. the power of coaching. That's the power of accountability. And it, so that's like the core thing that a daily coach provides is accountability. We we found this other thing which goes back to the Daniel Kahneman, the thinking fast and slow, is it's not just that you like feel this desire to do you know, do what you promised you would do to this other person. By reporting into this person, you end up articulating what happened to you in a way that forces you to think about it at kind of your your fully conscious level, your rational level, and a lot of things that maybe you had never addressed as sort of sitting below the surface um, just ends up getting addressed. And um, and so that's the that's the where a lot of the epiphany stuff comes from. It's like every day you're taking this sort of this you're evaluating this experience consciously, and you might not have done that otherwise if you didn't have an audience. So everyone kind of treats coaching a little bit differently, but for me, a lot of the value I get from it is just is the audience. Is like I report into my coach and I say, okay, here's what I did, and then as I'm reporting it, I'm like, you know, banging my head on the table, going, oh, I know how I could have done that yep. so much better. Yeah. And uh, and so you know, accountability is not like um, just uh, uh, you know carrot and stick kind of sure. stuff. Sure. Right? There's a, a much higher intellectual level going on there that can be really, really powerful. Yeah, it's, it's that it's, it's that it, it, that self awareness that's prompted through the coaching that that often creates its own you know its own momentum for you to make make changes. Um, cool. And then the last tip you gave is make it fun, and I, I love that because I think that's one thing that especially uh, achievers you know we we forget to make it fun. And I try for me every day I go play basketball for half an hour because I love it. It's good exercise. Yes. I get some sunshine, and it just reminds me. I stop in the middle of my work day where I'm you know stressed out or focused or whatever, and I just get to relax and remind myself that life is about playing basketball for these thirty minutes. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So I love it. Let, let's let's wrap up with with one piece of advice. If you could, you know, I call this a writer downer. Uh, what's the best piece of advice? It could be a quote, a mantra, a guiding principle that that's significantly helped you that you can share with our achieve your goals listeners. Oh, you know, I prepped for this, but then I ended up giving it away. You gave early. it away. <laughs> I, I mean, I really, I like that that ten years to become an overnight success is this really important piece of expectation setting. I'm actually, and, I'm. Gl- Oh, go ahead. It just like a lot of, a lot of time. I mean, actually, I've never heard anyone frame it this way. But a lot of failure. A lot of times when I see failure, it just comes down to mismatched expectations. And I have a really clear-cut example of this. We've helped eighty-five thousand people start a meditation practice, which is just one of the important or popular goals on the platform. Sure. And um, and so we 
we got really personally interested in meditation as a performance practice. So not for spiritual reasons, but it's just like, how can you treat meditation as push-ups for your brain, make yeah. your mind smarter, more focused, like all the reasons that you see athletes or hedge fund managers adopting meditation. Yeah. Even the military now is adopting uh, meditation practices sometimes. And, um, and so we were interested in that reason. We wondered why some people are able to adopt it and other people claim that meditation is impossible for them. And in our research, it was incredibly clear cut. People who failed to um, uh, pick up a meditation practice had incorrect expectations about what meditation was, sort yeah. of impossible to achieve medita uh, ex expectations. And, and the fundamental expectation is just that your mind is going to be calm the whole Clear, way. no thoughts, sure. Right, but that's not what meditation is. Meditation is becoming aware of when your mind wandered and then often bringing it back to a point of focus, like your breath. And so we always train meditation the opposite way. We train it as like repetitions, like you're doing weights or push-ups. So every time your mind wanders and you notice it, become aware of it, put that thought down and bring your, your focus back to your breath, that's one repetition. And if your mind wanders a lot, that just means you get to do extra repetitions. Oh, I love that perspective. That's a much healthier way to think of meditation. And the people who are failing, they always say, oh, you know, I sat down for just 30 minutes, but my mind kept wandering, so, you know, maybe I'm just not good at meditation. And I'm like, oh, no, but, like, you know, our, one of the meditation gurus we talk to, we say, well, he says, you look, if you sat down for 30 minutes and your mind didn't wander, we should take you to the hospital. <laughs> like something is wrong with you there. And, and so that, that is an funny. example of expectations getting in the way of success because actually the people who are succeeding uh, were sitting down for like three to five minutes and their mind was wandering all over the place. Like meditation is nearly impossible to do wrong if you have the right expectations going in. It's like really the easiest practice you can do. I meditate on the train. Yeah. And like I'm surrounded by a crowd, and I just close my eyes and I do my breathing exercise. And like, and it totally, it works and it sets me up for my day in a, in a pretty impressive way. And, uh, and I just like the people who are failing, bad expectations. I've never heard meditation described that way, and it, it is a part of the Miracle Morning. There, there are six practices that make up the Miracle Morning. Silence is the first one, and you know, meditation is the most popular uh, form of silence. So right. you and I need to circle back. I, we're going to do a Miracle Morning uh, updated and expanded edition of the book, and uh, we, I'd love to you know, include that from you in there. Would love to, for sure. Cool. Well, you know, you are It's funny. Your your uh, your one writer downer. Your piece of advice. You 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 uh, had mentioned. You already said it, which is it takes ten years to be an overnight success. But the funny part is, I had wanted to circle back to that, and I had for it's in my notes, but I had forgotten until you brought it back up. So, I'm glad you said it because I, I say that a lot. But what I've never heard uh, the, a question I've never heard attached to that is, what are you willing to spend ten years building? What yeah. are you willing to invest 10 years of your life, of your time building? And, and I think it's important for people listening if you're like, I don't know. Sometimes you've got you've to you know, right, throw, throw, you know, throw stuff at the wall, see what sticks. So sometimes you've got to just keep trying new things until you find that thing that you are willing to spend 10 years building. But it goes back to expectation, right, Tony? Yeah, If your expectation sure. is, I tried it for a year and I failed. Well, you you tried it for one tenth of the time that's required, right? Yeah, you know. You know so, I mean, I I was um, 
I just saw the Amy Winehouse documentary the other day. Mm. I hadn't really paid attention to her first album, which is this kind of jazz piece. It wasn't as pop as her the the rehab album that you know most people know. But one thing that really struck me is that you know she wasn't as good. It wasn't just the genre; she wasn't as good yet. And you know when she really became famous, she was much more polished. And that and you know if she had given up when she was in high school or when she was because uh, she was a high school musician or given up you know in this first album that was probably you know not making a real living for her uh, you know she never would have made it to kind of the heights of superstar I mean this is a sad story I mean she died but yeah. the, uh, you know don't there's also a don't do drug story here but the, <laughs> there's a like really a practice story that really resonated with me and it's just we're it's it's incredibly unfair that we don't see our superstars earlier. Hmm. We don't see them when they don't matter. We don't see them when they're screwing up, and so we have just completely incorrect expectations about where success comes from. God, that makes sense, well, Tony. I I have to be very honest with you. This has been one of my favorite interviews. So. Um, you know, maybe it's because I just ate lunch. I'm not sure, but <laughs> right, it was, you had a great lunch. Right? <laughs> I did have, sure I did have a that. great vegan raw lunch. So that might be why. But uh, all uh, that aside, uh, thank you so much, man. I really, really, really appreciate it. Cool. How uh, it was super fun for me too, and I hope people got something out of it. And you know, of course, anything we talked about is available just straight from Coach.me. Yeah, I was going to say, if people want to get a hold of you or you know check out the app, just go to the app store, coach.me. I'm, I'm guessing the website is coach.me as well, correct? For sure, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, you guys check it out. If you if you want affordable coaching, um, I mean, I, I can't endorse coaching enough. If you want affordable coaching, coach.me uh, you know, might be the you know the most advanced and practical solution available. So check it out. Tony Stubblevine, thank you so much for being on the uh, episode and Achieve Your Goals podcast listeners. I will see you next week. In the meantime, set huge goals Give it everything you have. Stay committed. Stay focused. Accept nothing less because you deserve nothing less. We'll talk to you soon. And thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the podcast. So hopefully now you can see the true power of personal coaching and you are ready to go find a coach to help you get to that next level. I would highly encourage you uh, to go to halelrod.com slash 084 and leave your biggest takeaways from this episode with Hal and Tony. Uh, also, please go, if you haven't done so yet, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a rating and review. These rating and reviews are your best way to show your appreciation for the podcast because they help spread the word and help other people decide if the podcast is right for them. And if you're looking to make this year your best year ever, please go to byebonline.com where you can find Hal's best year ever blueprint online course. And that will help walk you through some of Hal's procedures to help you create a life-changing year. So now until next week, it's time for you to go out there, take action, and achieve your goals.
If you're looking to grow your business using podcasting, but don't have the time to edit the audio, insert the intro and outro, write up the show notes, post the episode to all the different sites, and do all of the ridiculous back-end work that's required, then you need yourpodcastguru.com, where you bring the content and we take care of the rest. We'll even co-host the show for you. Visit yourpodcastguru.com right now to explode your audience and crush it in the podcasting world.